Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We come your way every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. We are podcasting, I call it a broadcast podcast, uh, a BP, if you will, uh, and we podcast uh, at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and a lot of other locations that folks are linking us to, and we thank you folks for doing that. We also have a, um, a, a website that we're going to give you for our guest, who uh, we're going to be talking with in just a few moments. I'm looking forward to this program. I think it's going to be very, very interesting for, for I hope for you, it's definitely going to be interesting for me, but then again, I'm that kind of guy that I find interest in just about anything. And uh, we also encourage you, if you would like to, we would love to get from you financially. We do have a PayPal and Patreon account uh, that is for security purposes, especially for you and for me. And if you can do that, great. Uh, we'll take energetic healing. And I want to thank those who have helped and those who will help in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today's program <clears throat> is going to be sort of, I guess you could say sort of a, uh, uh, has sort of a, um, I'm going to say spiritual bent, not so much religious as much as spiritual. Because my definition of religion is taking care of uh, the sick and the orphans and the widows. That's, that is true religion, ladies and gentlemen, taking care of our fellow men, women, and children who are in need. And in this uh, <clears throat> uh, COVID virus, uh, COVID-19 coronavirus time, we need to be taking care of one another and not being concerned about uh, our individual rights and, and freedoms and liberty. Because if we don't take care of the people around us, kiss your liberty and your freedom goodbye because you'll be in the other world. So let's let's just do that. Let's set that aside. And and a lot of places are doing it. I got to tell you, we're seeing the news stories on um, a, a wonderful acts of kindness. Well, <clears throat> an act of kindness is my guest joining us here on the program, August Turak. He's my guest. He's the author of uh, several uh, several books, in particular, Brother John. It's it's one book that we're talking about. It is a monk, a pilgrim, <clears throat> and the purpose of life. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, 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 Augusta, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Where are we? Uh, where are we connecting with you? I'm, uh, I'm. First of all, thank you for having me on. It's a privilege. I am in Raleigh. Well, I'm on a farm, oh, uh, about thirty miles outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And I would venture the weather ain't bad out there this time of the year. No, it's the best. It's the best time of the year. Um, it's fall and spring. We have long falls and long springs of nice mild weather. There are um, there are a couple things I want to mention to you as well as to our listeners. Um, this is 2020, as you already know. <clears throat> but I declared back in September 2020 the year of perfect vision. Going within, spending time with self, getting to know self, looking for that still space, that peace and calm, which we all really need right now, uh, as well as getting instruction, getting guidance. Again, listening to the still small voice that is always there, your intuition, you want to call it the Holy Spirit, you want to call it the divine self, whatever you want to call it, it's there and uh, I really encourage people to to spend time doing that. And one of the best places to do it, you kind of mentioned one place, is out in nature. You you're on a farm today. I live up on the hill above Santa Barbara in a rural area. Uh, it's about seven miles uh, north northeast, uh, northwest, I should say, of uh, of Santa Barbara. 
it's due north of another small town called Goleta along the coast here. And we have the opportunity to do that every day. We see hawks flying over. We've got a family of deer on the property, as I mentioned to you, uh, the, the plethora of animals that we have today. Used to have a flock of turkeys. And uh, I was actually out just yesterday as of this conversation. I was uh, with my weed whacker. I was knocking down weeds for about 100 feet from the house, as, as is required by law and so forth. But also, I do it because I want to preserve the area and if there's a wildfire that comes through. And believe it or not, even with that loud noise going on of the trimmer, I was just, I was just loving where I was, even amidst the weeds, which, you know, one man's weed is another man's flower. Um, and it just seems to me like that's something that, that we really need right now. Can you talk to us from your perspective and the work that you have done, <clears throat> pardon me, especially in light of Brother John? who is the main character here or the, 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 person uh, featured in this particular book, brother John, talk to us about your perceptions, your perspective on finding and getting in touch with that intuitive part of ourselves. Well, you know, this, I started going to the monastery. It's called Mepkin Abbey where brother John lives. It's called Mepkin Abbey Monastery. It's a Trappist monastery. It's right outside of uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I started going there back in 1996 as a monastic guest when I was going through a the mother of all midlife crises, or what I like to call my dark night of the soul, which was triggered, by the way, by a skydiving accident that shattered my right ankle. And, uh, and that's the lifestyle that they live. They get up at 3 o'clock in the morning on purpose. So because they believe, and I, I agree with them after my experience, is that very early in the morning that you can be in that in-between twilight state where you're not quite awake yet, but you're no longer sleeping. And it's the most conducive time for listening for that still, small voice. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about uh, something that I heard in a, a sermon down there where someone took the uh, stuff from the, uh, the words from the Psalms and he said, one of the priests said, uh, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. So the declension goes right down to just being able to be quiet. And, you know, we're, I've been interviewed a lot, actually, on another subject of uh, is Corona beer the cure for coronavirus? And when I talk about it, and that is the fact that alcohol sales are up 30%. The milk from thorns opportunity that we have here that you've already alluded to is the to take this time to go within, to reevaluate, to go through what we called back in the 1960s, that agonize and reappraisal. What is your life all about? Are you living your life with your highest purpose and your highest mission? Are you living the right kind of life? Are you uh, in right accordance with your religion or your spirituality? All the all those big questions you know, we're always screaming. We don't have time for myself. I don't have any time to deal with myself. I'm so busy. And now we have it. And what do we want to do? Drink. <clears throat> so we can forget about ourselves. So we can forget about our duties and our obligations to all the things that we might maybe not like to think about. The American public is absolutely addicted to um, diversions, to being distracted you can't even go to a sporting event with if there's a lull in the action for two seconds, they blare on the music. They blare on the jumbotron. We've got it. We can't be alone with our thoughts for 30 seconds. 
And this is what the monks spend their lives cultivating um, because they live a contemplative life. That's, their, that's, that's what they're there for, to be, live a contemplative life. Well, I, I can relate to what you're saying as we've conversed here over the last 10 or 11 months. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, in, in relationship to uh, getting in touch with self, one of the great poems, uh, and I'm actually going to uh, see if I can't pull that up for you real quick here, but one of these, these poems that was written by a gentleman by the name of Tiberius, uh, and um, <clears throat> he, um, he, he really said it well in reference to this in this particular poem, which was actually a song. And um, basically, and I'm, I think, ah, what do you know? The book opens right up to, to the space where I need to be. And the poem, basically, it's called, Where Shall We Hide the Truth? Now, um, without uh, going through the entire uh, five, four stanzas of the poem, it, this is basically, um, uh, where shall we hide the truth from man? And this is the gods uh, all crying when he was made, when man was made. And they're thinking, boy, if they, he finds the truth, we're in trouble. And they all are going on and on about, well, where should we hide? Well, hide it in the mountain. Oh, he'll find a way to climb. We'll hide it in the depths of the ocean. No, he'll find a way to get down there. Uh, we'll hide it here. I know we'll where this is going. Yes. <laughs> hide it inside himself. There you go. He says, we'll hide it in his heart. He never, he'll never look there. Right, right. And that seems to be what is so interesting. Uh, I was born and raised Catholic. And of course, I was certainly taught. And I went through all of the sacraments. Well, not all of them. I haven't gone through the last rites yet, although there are days. And um, I went through the sacrament of confession, where you go into the booth and you confess your sins to the priest. But as I have grown, I've learned I don't have to go to a priest. I don't have to go to anybody. All I have to do is go within. And one of the things that I have found interesting, uh, August, <clears throat> in working for 15 years for a Christian radio station back in the 80s, early 90s, I um, uh, I contemplated this whole thing, and um, you know you you made an uh, you made a uh, a reference to this from the Psalms about uh, be still and know that I am God, and one of the things that I read and of course this was sort of hammered home uh, by many of the pastors and ministers and laity and so forth about the New Testament phrase be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect and I pondered that I'm going what does that mean. Well, the long and the short of it is, it goes back to that passage from Psalms, that God is neither good nor bad, right nor wrong, left or right, black or white, light or dark. He just, God just is. So to be perfect isn't to follow the rules, isn't to go down the right path. It's just to be. To be right where you are right now. And to me, what a great place to start. Um, what about the lessons of Father John, a uh, Brother John, I beg your pardon, uh, in, in, in this particular book? And first of all, tell us uh, about your experiences in this monastery. Uh, I have never, I've, I've, I've been to the, um, oh, uh, there's an abbey. I want to say, I think it's the Kildare Abbey in Ireland, in, in, in uh, County Galway. 
my wife and I visited. We've got some amazing photographs and what an amazing experience. But I've never spent time other than one weekend for three days and two nights. I was driven up to a monastery up north of Phoenix, Arizona, across the highway from Black Canyon City, where you can bring whatever you want with you. You're there for a period of prayer and meditation, what have you. Um, you donate X number of dollars and you bring your own food and so forth. And you can go wherever you want. You can even go under the freeway to the black Canyon city. And I spent three days there. And at first it was a little frightening because I was there basically by myself. I had really, unless I went across the highway, I had no interaction with anybody else. And so I, I had my drawing pad. So I do some, I had some of my music. So I sang some, um, it was really quite extraordinary. What what were your initial reactions and or experiences to being in that kind of environment, which is so different from what we're used to? Well, I, I get that question a lot. First of all, to re- recall, I didn't go there just on retreat or something like that. I went uh, because I was in a crisis period of my life. And I had some things happen to me on the first weekend that I went down there. This was 1996. They were kind of paranormal, kind of spiritual experiences, whatever you want to call them. That drew me back again and again. But I like to tell people that even when I go, I've gone as long as four months or five months with living. And when I go, I go as what's called a monastic guest, which means I get a robe. I'm a part-time monk. I check in and I'm like a reservist. They're like Marines and I'm like a reservist, you know, so I... I come in for a part on a, on a part-time basis. They give me a, a, a my own little habit in gray. I live with the monks behind the cloister wall. I get up with them at three in the morning. I go to work with them on their on their monastic farm and, and, and business. And basically, I just live the same life that they live. I also I like to say that there's like three or four, three or four stages that I typically go through when I'm there. And the first stage is novelty. You know, when you're first there and everything. You know, even if you have even though I've been there many many times. If I go for an extended say, there's still this getting back, seeing people that I'm, you know, getting, you know, there's novelty, there's a romance. Mm-hmm. The second, the second stage I call detox. Within a day or two of being there, you suddenly um, realize just how overstimulated you've been coming in here. I mean, so a lot of your thoughts are still on the outside world. Oh my gosh, I should have, I never answered that email before I left or things like that. So you, you, you detox and you miss it. You know, you miss the stimulation, you know, maybe you're fidgety, maybe you're kind of, you're kind of bored or whatever. And then to me, after it takes about a week or so to get over that stage. And then the next stage to me is when I finally start getting in the, in in the tune of things. And I start finding that my mind is no longer thinking about what I left behind. It's, it's focused on what is happening, you know, um, uh, this morning or something I heard at church that morning or some some hymn that we sang that, that struck me or something I read last night. And the final stage I call timelessness. And that's when it almost becomes uh, as if you're in some kind of a dreamy kind of a state. Uh, the, the, the rhythm of the monastic life picks you up and carries you along. Um, you start to lose track. The reason I call it timeless, you lose track. It, you know, you find yourself at work thinking about a passage from scripture or whatever, and you start thinking, was that this morning, last night, last week that I heard that? Was, was that conversation with Brother Robert, was that this morning or was that a month ago? Uh, you know, it, everything just kind of 
coalesces into this into this rhythm. And I and the monastic life is designed to bring that about. It's not an accident. The, the repetition over and over and over again is designed to put you in a almost perpetual meditative kind of a state, you know. But I think there's also what I will call the dark side, um, although I don't consider it necessarily dark in the long run. You know, it's like I met there was a new there was a new uh, monk that was down there and his, his name was uh, Brother Benedict. Eventually he became Brother Benedict, but he was brother, his name was just Jim when he first got there. He was a novice. And I ran into him at work the uh, first time we ever ran into each other. We knew who each other were, but we hadn't met. So I stuck out my hand and I said, Jim, I said, Augie Turak, how are you doing? And he said, and he said, great. And I said, how's it going? And he looked right at me and he said, it's hard. And it's, <laughs> and it's so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And I said, for example, and he said, I'm right here all the time. This place is just one great big mirror. He said, I thought I was when I when I, he was actually had been an executive at Columbia University. He said, I thought I was leaving my demons behind, but I guess they just came along with me. And so when you were talking about, you know, you think that people think, oh, my goodness. You know, yes, absolutely. Just be just just, you know, just settle into yourself, you know, all that. No. What happens is that all these things, there was, a, there was an interview in the New York Times where they went to Webkin Abbey and they were interviewing um, retreatants because they have this beautiful retreat center. I highly suggest people go. It's, not, you, it's a donation only kind of thing. And it's, and it's 10,000 acres of just beautiful Hank Moss Oaks and the Cooper River. And, oh, it's just a gorgeous place. And all these people are being interviewed. Oh, it's so peaceful and it's so tranquil and it's so spiritual. But then they finally got to this executive and he said, yeah, it's peaceful and tranquil. All right. But let me tell you something. When you're sitting on a park bench for hours on end with nothing to do but watch the Cooper River go by, he says, you might start you start thinking about a lot of things you might not th- want to think about. And there's a lot of things in our lives that we don't want to think about. The things that we know need to be changed. All the people we need to apologize to or the relationships we've allowed to go bad or whatever it is. Or some guilt of, the, of something we did years ago that we never made up for. and Or some way in which we're living uh, the wrong kind of life. We're smoking cigarettes or we're drinking or we're addicted to porn or whatever it is. And when you don't have anything to distract you, this stuff has a tendency to start bubbling up. And it can make you very, very, very uncomfortable and very, very anxious. And this is one of the reasons. You know, Pascal, the great um, theologian and philosopher, once said, um, the world would be, um, would be a peaceful place if we had all just learned how to live quietly, uh, stay quietly in our rooms. Um, <laughs> And but guess where we are now. I, but I, I used to do this as an experiment myself. I used to um, sit quietly and just notice, you know, as I say, just pay attention. And I would notice that as I sat quietly, uh, at first I was just sitting quietly. And then all of a sudden, boredom would start coming. And so I started to examine boredom. And I, and I said to myself, why is boredom so uncomfortable? Why don't I like boredom, you know? So I examined it a little more closely, and I realized that underneath boredom is anxiety. <laughs> that bore, there's an anxiousness to boredom. This is that that energy that makes you want to just jump up and do something when you're bored. 
you know, and underneath that boredom, all the time, uh, that anxiety, there's sometimes there's panic because we just realize that um, that there's a lot of things that need to be addressed in our lives that we just don't we don't want to face. So um, I, I wrote in one of my, my first book that I wrote was called um, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And I said, an interesting word in the English language is disillusionment. Mm. Because it has a universally negative connotation. No one wants to be disillusioned. No one wants their children to be disillusioned. But then I think to myself, what does the word technically mean? It means to lose what's not true. It means to get rid of illusions, to get rid of what seems and exchange it for what is. So if if we're talking about the truth as opposed to fiction, why do we hate disillusionment so much? The answer is very, very simple if you think about it. We're terrified of the truth. You know, the truth will set you free, but it isn't your truth. And the truth is oftentimes something that the very thing we don't want to hear, which goes back to your story about that's why the human heart is the last place we go to look. You know, I love the old um, story. I tell my students about it sometimes of Aladdin and the lamp. And if you go back to that old Aladdin and the lamp story, you know, first of all, there's this black magician. He's a terrible person. Um, and therefore, he can't go down into the cave because he's corrupt. So he has to find a virgin boy, which is Aladdin, somebody who's pure. And he's got to get Aladdin to go down into the into the dark cave. And then he gives the instructions to Aladdin. And he says, when you get down into that cave, you're going to see gold and silver and riches and everything beyond imagine. Ignore all that. That's a distraction. At the very back of the cave, you're going to find this old, beat up, banged up lamp that looks like it's not worth 15 cents. That's what I want. And he says, on the way back, he says, if you want to pick, once you get that, on the way back, if you want to pick up, and Aladdin eventually picks up a piece of plate to bring his mother a silver plate or something like that. And to me, what is this about? It's like all the mythology, you know. Um, Aladdin is going to take the journey into the unknown, into the unconscious mind, into the deepest part of ourselves, into the human heart. And in order to make that journey, I mean, this is where I would slightly disagree with you. It does matter what we do or what we don't do. In order to make this journey safely and correctly, we have to be able to ignore the distractions. This is the behavior we're going to need. We have to be able to ignore the boredom, the, the anxiety, the, 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 the desire to jump up and go make that telephone call that we need to make or whatever. And we're going to have to be um, brave. And we have to go with faith because the faith is that that still small voice which corresponds to that 15 set lamp is what we're really looking for. And, and, and it's, and it's there and it's, and it is, it's infinitely valuable and ignore all the gold and the silver and the jewels and everything and go for that lamp. And that takes a tremendous amount of courage. It takes a tremendous amount of faith, you know, and it takes a lot of work. Well, I, I would uh, uh, say to, uh, <clears throat> to the disagreement, and not challenging by any means. What I would say is that um, on the one hand, uh, just being is important, but it's again, it's not enough to listen to the voice. It is not enough. And I've learned this time and time again. Uh, prime example, I was bicycling uh, when I, I was not, uh, I couldn't see well enough to, to drive a car. Uh, and I was born legally blind from birth. And I'm bicycling to work. And I'm uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and where we were, uh, where the transmitter site was, where we broadcasted from, was 
um, uh, was amongst a bunch of farm fields, which were basically a mile square. And so I'm traveling along and I'm getting this impression. Okay, up at the next corner, uh, next intersection, I want you to turn right. I want you to go up the mile, if you will. Then go ahead and turn left. Then at the next intersection, go ahead and turn left again. And then you'll come back to the road you were on and continue on. And I, I heard this. I felt this. It was a sensation, you know. And I was like, that's weird. So anyway, I went flying right through the intersection. I kept right on going. And the impression get, kept going, getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I went a half a mile. It wouldn't go away. I turned around. I went back to that intersection I had just gone through. I went up, then over and down and back to the road I was on, which I was only a half a mile from in the first place. And I went on to work. And I, I then questioned, why was I told to do that? Why was I impressed to do that what what did i avoid or what scenario did i create and the conclusion that i came to was that it is not enough to listen to the still small voice to listen to the guidance you have to follow it and so to your point you're absolutely right you do have to put into action but I believe that that still small voice will never put us in harm's way. It is there to guide us. It is there to take us, not that necessarily down the easy road, but to take us down the path that we need to go down. In oh, order I, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. I, my, the yeah. point that I'm making is that if, if, it's, if it's universally good, and it's going to lead us the right way, and it is the answer, and you and I both agree on that, then why do so few people go there? Yeah. And I, so, again, I, I come back to the fact that, that there is a lot of, you know, it's like the hero's journey. There's a desert stage, and you're going to have to go through a lot of things that people are afraid of that they don't want to have to face. And that's why, you know, in the Christian tradition, and I talk about a lot of it, I talk a lot about this in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, formation. You have to be formed to be strong enough to have the character you need to persevere when it gets tough. Uh, you know, and I would take go one step further even because I agree with you. By the way, you're talking about being and becoming. Being is one, you know, as Thomas Aquinas would say, being is one side and becoming is the other side. You know, as T.S. Eliot said, we will not cease from our exploration until we come, we arrive where we started from and know the place for the first time. So we go from being through a process of becoming back to being again, but now we we know the place for the as opposed to not knowing the place, and so this is an you know an extremely important journey that we have to make. And I say again, I would say that the real ultimate goal is not just to put it into action, but to merge with that still small voice. And and Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence and the word excellence that he meant was arete, which is, means excellence of character, virtue, perfection, as you might have said, is is a um, is is not what we um, a choice. It's a habit. It's something you do. But you become it by repeatedly doing it, and you become. Uh, you know, there's that great. You were speaking about the Byzantine tradition, and the Jesus prayer is so incredibly important in the Jesus tradition, in the Byzantine tradition, and in Russia. And it's just, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they have the beads, and they repeat it over and over and over again until they merge with it, till it be, they become one with that prayer. Yeah. Um, and 
and this is the uh, uh, the way. And it's interesting that you were. You know, I wanted to mention a little bit about you asked before about my book. And what happened to me was that I go down to this monastery, and I have this incredible encounter with this brother John on Christmas Eve, on the first Christmas I went down there. That was 1996. That's when I applied to become a monastic guest, and I spent four weeks at the monastery. Seven or eight years later, my college students at Duke challenged me to enter an essay contest. The Templeton Foundation was offering uh, a, a contest called the Power of Purpose Essay Contest, and 3,500 words or less answer the question, what is the purpose of life? Um, by the time I heard about it, there was only like a week left in the, con in the contest. I'd never written anything before in my life, but I decided to give it a whirl. Another one of my students said, I wasn't getting anywhere. And another student said, why don't you just write that story about Brother John? You're always telling us. So why don't you just write that up? So I wrote that up as the answer to what is the purpose of life? I submitted it at the last moment. Six months went by. I get a telephone call. I'd won the $100,000 grand prize. There had been 10,000 essays submitted from 47 countries from professional writers and previously published material. And my essay, Brother John, which is now my book that you're talking about, Brother John, the monk book. Pilgrim of the Perth, had won the $100,000 grand prize. As a matter of fact, some people might know, Rick Warren was the, one of the one of the judges, and he was actually the one who did the, handed me the $100,000 check. <laughs> but, um, so people, so, uh, you know, people want to know all the time, so what do I, what did I say there was the purpose of life? And it was an incredible encounter of selflessness, which you led into in the show today, of kindness of that I experienced. And I went from that and I said, the purpose of every human life is not different strokes for different folks. We are all here for the exact same purpose. And that is to become the best human being we can possibly be. And I define that as self-transcendence. We're here to, to transcend ourselves. Now, whether I do it as a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief, while you do it as a, as a, as a, uh, on radio or, or someone or as a married man or as a single man, these are all, this is where the different strokes comes in. But we're all here for the same reason. And when I got to my second book, which was Business Secrets of the Tra Trappist Monks, which was another accident, how that all came about and how I became a contributor for Forbes magazine. But um, now I'm a professional writer. But uh, the uh, I, I, I fur further clarified what I meant from, from Brother John, which is that we, we are here to go, to be transformed over the arc of our lives from selfishness to selflessness. And every child starts out life screaming, mine, mine, mine. Little babies, you know, uh, aren't very good at sharing uh, and, and worrying about other people, you know. Uh, they're just about themselves. And so we're here to make that arc. And my point that I can make in terms of business and everything else is that the more successfully we forget our selfish motivations, the more successful our lives will be. It is in our own self-interest to forget our self-interest. And I, I show how the Trappist businesses were built on selflessness and how I built a $100 million company based on selflessness using their model. It's almost the message of Buddha as he came to the Bodhi tree, he was looking for enlightenment and looking for everywhere uh, the, the the whole aspect of desperation, so to speak, for finding enlightenment. Right. And finally, he sits down under the Bodhi tree and stops, and suddenly he has it and realizes, oh, oh, I get it now. I If I don't look for it, I've got it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that my own personal business practices really put people 
um, uh, to, to the, a certain level of consternation with me because back when I was working again for this, uh, religious, this Christian radio station, um, I was certainly questioning constantly, you know, and, uh, um, at the same time, I was also producing the programs and I was working with programmers to produce different things off to the side that they wanted. They would bring in these different things. Hey, could you do this with it for me? Could you create this for me? Could you create this for me? I said, sure, you know, and we would negotiate a price. Well, when people would find out what I negotiated, they said, you're underselling yourself. You need, you need to be charging more. Well, first of all, my philosophy back then, and it still is today. I would rather do the work to help them to get their message out. And even to this day, whether it's religious or secular, my goal is to get your message out with as few or no distractions so people can listen to it and make up their own minds. That's goal number one. That was, that was philosophy number one. And that if I'm able to make a few dollars, great. I would rather do the work for the minimal amount of dollars then say, this is what I charge. And they say, well, we can't afford that. And so now I do nothing. So there's no learning. There's no helping. There's no supporting. The second philosophy is, and it's much simpler. My goal is not to make me successful. My goal is to make you successful. Because if you're successful, then I'm successful. But it has to start with you. God bless you. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a leadership contributor for Forbes, and I saw and I give lectures about leadership. And I said, this is essentially exactly what I tell people. I said, if you think about it for a second, the vast majority of people want to become leaders for the prestige, for the money, for the power, for, for themselves. But the task of leadership is not to make me successful, it's to make other people successful. The task of leadership is not to get me promoted, it's to get other people promoted. And the, and the paradox is that the more people I get promoted, the faster I get promoted. Mm-hmm. And as a salesman, I came up through sales myself, and I was good enough at it that I was on the cover of Selling Magazine at one point. I said, every great salesman knows the more he forgets his commissions, forgets his quota, forgets his product, and fanatically focuses on helping his customers solve problems, solve his problems, the revenue takes care of itself. The, the, the machine, you move more product, you get more commissions. It's 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 the paradox that the more you you know it's it's, it's a kind of a corny story, but I remember hearing a, a, a sermon one time about where the priest said, "What's the difference between uh, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee?" He said, "They're both fed by the Sea of um, by the um, Jordan River, but this Dead Sea has nothing in it, and the, and the Sea of Galilee is full of life." He said, "Well, I'll tell you the secret." He said, "All the water of that comes into the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River." It is given away. The Sea of Galilee gives all of its water away, but the Dead Sea keeps all the water that comes to it and never gives any of that water away. He said, so if you want to be blessed yourself, give blessings away. And and it's very, very hard for people. This, again, this takes uh, formation and experience and, and faith to live this way. Um and that's one of the messages of my books is that the more I learned for this from the monks, because they live completely selflessly and everything they touch turns to gold. Every, mm. you know, everything that they, that they, uh, they sell, people line up to buy um, because everything is, is done with a uh, high degree of quality because they're not in it for the money. Yeah. The you know, paradoxically, they make a lot of money. 
Yeah, exactly. I got, a, I got a call or an email from a, a good friend who I've worked with for many years here in Santa Barbara at the station. And um, uh, he asked me to do a little project for him because for some reason he was having difficulty with it. It was something online. And I said, well, and I just immediately said, sure. Uh, of course, he also said there, you know, and I'll certainly compensate you. Well, you know, if I can help you to get this stuff up and you can get some work, that's that's compensation enough because that's what I want you to get. He's a voiceover talent and an actor and so forth. Uh, and so I went online and I was able to accomplish half the job and I sent him an email saying, Hey, I got this much done, but I can't do this because so he sends me more information. Boom. I'm able to finish the second half. Boom. Okay. You're good to go. I didn't mention anything about, uh, Hey, I use Venmo or uh, PayPal. You can send me the money that way, or just send it to me in a check or what if, and, or when he ever gives me the money, I don't care. You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's that the man was in need. Cause he was struggling with the computer issue and I do that with everybody. I mean, my goodness. You know, people always used to ask me, I was, I was volunteering all this time working, coaching college students on spiritual issues. Um, Duke university, university of North Carolina, North Carolina state university. And they were student clubs that the kids would form and I would mentor them. And, and everybody said, you never, you're not on the faculty. You don't get paid. You're trying to run two companies as an entrepreneur. You're going over there and you're spending all this time with these kids and they don't really appreciate it. They're a bunch of college kids, you know. And uh, and I just kept on doing it and not asking for anything in return. And uh, and then now when I look back, I say, wait a second. It was the college kids that took me skydiving. And that's how I broke my – or if I hadn't broke my ankle, I wouldn't have gone to the monastery. So – and it was a it was a, one of my students who was at Mepkin Abbey who called me up and told me about Mepkin Abbey. It was one of my students that suggested that I enter this Templeton Prize winning contest – it was another one of my students who said, write the essay, brother, who gave me the idea for writing the Brother Jonathan essay. And then a couple of years ago, um, um, some of my former students from Duke called me up and they said, we're starting a company in New York City. Can you help us out? And I th flew up there and they said, you know, we'd like some help in sales. There's only about 10 people in a small room in New York City and kids, you know, 25 year old. And they said, um, but we can't afford to pay you. And I said, that's all right. I said, uh, just pay my expenses and give me some stock. So they gave me a whole bunch of stock. <clears throat> I came home four months later and thought, okay, well, this has been fun, but you know, this stock will never be worth anything. Now they're a $2 billion company. The stock is worth $15, $18 a share. I would have never expected in a million years that it would work that way. But these things come back to you in magical kinds of ways. It's kind of like the book of Job, getting it, where Job gets everything back seven times over. Well, I have to tell you that, that, that I have to say that that is so extraordinary and it, it confirms for me even more so, even though I really didn't need any confirmation on this, uh, of a universal law that I have believed in. Now, my, my boss at the Christian station, he lived by, and he referred to this, he says he lived by the law of diminishing returns. And for those of you who do not know what that is, you don't put the law basically, uh, as I understand it says, you do not put out any more than you expect to get back. Uh, case in point, we had a client, a programmer, uh, a minister, who had all these five-inch reel-to-reels of uh, things that he had done over the years, and he wanted to have them combined so that they would, um, they would appear, uh, that they, he could use them as programs. Okay, that uh, he could use them as some of his uh, broadcast uh, stuff for our radio station. 
And I'm talking about a lot of reel to reels, maybe 50 or 60 of them. All right. And so my, you know, um, and I wasn't going to get paid by him. This was again, part of the operation of the station. This was just part of the service that we were providing. And I said, fine, you know? And, um, so anyway, I, without going into too much detail here, I went through the process of transferring the uh, reels to, uh, a half hour shows. And he was, uh, in his second week and he canceled. Well, I didn't think anything of it because I thought, well, you know, something must've come up and this, that, and the other thing and, and whatnot. And, um, everything, you know, and, and, and just, it just, it just, it didn't bother me. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, my boss said, we're never doing that again. And, um, there's a universal law as I was referring to that basically says that there is always an exchange. Okay. You cannot escape it. That if there's a giver, there is a receiver. And if there's a receiver, there is a giver. And you also have to remember that you are not necessarily going to be compensated in the way in which you think you should be. Uh, just as you described. Now, I was doing interviews at this station, too. But I wasn't getting anything more than what I was doing. Um, and I started thinking about that in terms of the exchange. And then I realized, well, man, I'm getting a lot for this. Not only am I getting free airtime for these interviews I'm doing in the evenings on this religious radio station. I'm getting the books. Uh, I'm getting the, the interviews, the experience, the contacts. I've even had some of these people on this program tell me your story uh, over the years that I've been able to reconnect with because they have such interesting things to talk about and they've grown and changed and so forth. So I looked at that and I realized that just because I'm making minimum wage at this radio station doesn't mean I'm not compensated for what I'm putting out there. And I just, and then to your point also of, of uh, learning and growing, I wanted to give all of the information that was in my head about what I was doing at the station. I wanted to give that away because I realized that if I didn't, if I didn't share it, I'd be stuck doing the same thing for God knows how long. Because if I shared it, and other people knew how to do it, I would get to go on and do other things. Uh, do you see that that's something that's happening uh, in the world today, uh, in, in, in business, in life in general? Are you seeing that that's sort of kind of happening? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, matter of fact, I was, at, I was supposed to give a speech at the Vatican um, on March 6th, and it was canceled at the last minute for obvious reasons. And what I was going to be talking about is my business secrets of the, the Trappist monks. And one of the points I make in that book is that there's a whole new paradigm, which they, which loosely refers to what's called conscious capitalism. And conscious capitalism is just what you're talking about or what we're talking about, applying the whole idea of selfless service um, uh, to the, to the, to the business model. And the point that I was making in the in my book, Business Secrets of Travis Monks, is that everybody and their dog thinks this is somehow new stuff. I said the Trappists the, the Trappists have been doing this for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. They've been consciously cap. You know, I say they invented capitalism, not Adam Smith, and they've been doing this 
They every Trappist monastery has to support itself. They don't get a check from the Vatican every month. They have to support themselves with their with their monastic businesses. And they're actually their motto is not just their contemplative order, but it's not just aura, which is prayer. It's aura et labora, which goes back to what you said: listen and act. Right, prayer and work, aura et labora. And so I'm saying, hey, this is so I kept saying throughout my book that this whole idea that I'm trying to put across is both ancient and emergent. It's ancient because the Trappists have been doing it for a thousand years. It's emergent because for most people it's new. It's conscious capitalism. It's the new, it's the it's the latest and the greatest thing. You know, I actually had an opportunity to be interviewed by Cardinal Dolan on his television show in New York City. And he was uh he had written a couple of um of uh, editorials for the Wall Street Journal defending the Pope, saying the Pope's not a communist, he's not socialist, he's he's just arguing for conscious capitalism um, as opposed to just nakedly, uh, uh, Ayn Rand, naked kind of capitalism. <clears throat> and I said, I said, Cardinal Dolan, you got to introduce me to his holiness. I said, I've got this book I've, that came out long before your editorials making the point that right within the church, the church has the model inside itself right now that the Pope seems to be groping towards because he's not, not an economist. So I, I am, I am very, uh, hopeful in terms of this, this trend towards, um, conscious capitalism. On the other hand, when I look at our general situation with the country and everything um i can get i can get pretty depressed uh, with the with the political situation we have and the things that we're doing and um you know i think we're in a i actually one of the um lectures the talks that i give is um called uh, tuning into grace but i what i talk about is that what is the first job of leadership the first job of leadership is to provide a mission to articulate a mission of higher purpose that other people can get, can buy into and serve selflessly. I said, and um, when I look around the country and I look at our opioid addiction problem or our alcoholism problem or the fact that young men are living with their parents until they're 35 or people don't want to get married anymore. And, um, you know, the World Health Organization says our number one disease in Western civilization is depression. And I said, everybody treats these as one-off problems. I said, I see them, suicide is another one. Suicide's off the Richter scale when it's 38 years, 38 to 54-year-old uh, white men who are shooting themselves. Um, so I see them all the same problem. We have a spiritual crisis. We have, as a matter of fact, I have a nonprofit organization called the Self-Knowledge Symposium Foundation. And the mission of our, our foundation is to help people find higher meaning and purpose in a world that so many people find bereft of me higher meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why people are drinking and taking drugs and all these other things is they're all empty inside because they have no higher meaning or purpose to their lives. And that's why my, I believe that's one of the reasons why my brother John book, the book you mentioned, brother John, a monk of pilgrim and the purpose of life has really resonated with so many people because that's what I'm talking about. You know, you need a higher meaning and purpose in your life. You know, I love what Carl Jung one time said. He, he was being interviewed and Carl Jung, of course, was the great psychiatrist and student of Freud's. And this woman was interviewing him and she said, um, uh, uh, you know, he said, he said, uh, he said, whether God exists or not is a legitimate question. Mm -hmm. That man needs a God is an incontrovertible fact. 
Mm. You know, um, we, you know, we, we absolutely need God. And uh, regardless, he, he was basically making kind of a similar, little bit of a joke by saying, regardless whether he exists or not. And we, we are, we are increasingly a godless society, you know, mm. um, and, uh, uh, you know, and religion and spirituality are being pushed into the shadows where it's pretty much a, Everybody keeps it's a personal thing, you know. It's your little personal thing. It's not supposed to be something you talk about or something you're public about. It's got to be this little personal thing. So that's what that's the to me the downside. I, I see this conscious capitalism as a as a a plus, but I worry very much about the sterilization of America from any kind of real spiritual truth. I think one of the problems that I'm seeing is uh, uh, that it's frustrating for me is the fact that people like. Pope uh, uh, um, Francis or uh, uh, Greta Thunberg or anybody else who just happens to have a voice uh, that they're they're getting recognized for is criticized because, well, she's she's not an environmentalist. She has no education. As a matter of fact, she quit school and he's he's the pope. He's some religious leader who he doesn't have uh, uh, any knowledge of capitalism. He doesn't have a degree in economics. And I sit here and I think about that. I'm going, I don't have a degree in economics either. But what I do know is the current model of capitalism is not sustainable, that it has to change. And if nothing more, the, uh, uh, the, the situation that we find ourselves in today, not only nationally, but globally, I have been not, not uh, I, again, don't get me wrong. I wish that we hadn't had this thing explode like it did over the last four or five months uh, across the globe but it has created the kind of opportunities that most people weren't even aware were there until this happened my uh, I, I, a prime example i was working for uh, um, a, a radio station back in phoenix in 2005 it was air america phoenix very progressive very liberal i'm sure you're familiar with it uh, in some fashion, Al, Al Franken, Franken used to be with Al Franken, exactly, and uh, Randy Rhodes and many, many others. Uh, even uh, what's the gal who's on MSNBC now? I can't think of her name. I see her face, but anyway. And um, I was also um, uh, associated with the religious radio station that I worked with and for from eighty-one to eighty to ninety-five. And all of a sudden, we're back in the same building in two thousand five, and a Christian consortium came along. And bought the religious station and then bought the Air America station. Well, the local paper interviewed them and said, hey, so uh, are you guys going to be changing the format of Air America? It's, oh, no, 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 no. We were the only Air America station, by the way, to make a profit, to break even in the shortest period of time of nine months, which was unheard of. And um, they said, oh, no, no, it's being it's profitable. Why would we why would we do that? Well, as soon as I read that, I knew they were lying because based upon everything that I had been told in those 15 years, there was a biblical passage that was just thrown up all of the time, whether you were getting into a relationship, into a business situation, whatever it was, uh, you are not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. So I knew they were lying. I just didn't know how long it was going to take before they told us that they were not going to uh, keep us and they were changing the format which is exactly what they did. They let us all go on the 28th of February was my last day. And I'm there 
on the 1st of March, I'm cleaning up my desk and my wife is working for the uh, hospital in uh, Scottsdale. And she calls me up, says, I just quit my job. You know, I'm sitting here going, wait a minute. You do realize we're both unemployed now. Um, We're sitting there watching TV that night, March 1st of 2006. And she says, I'm scared. Uh, I'm afraid. I feel like we're on the edge of a precipice. And I says, well, everything I know tells me. When you come to a cliff, you do two things. And these go to the point of what you're talking about, of what we've been talking about throughout this program. And those two things are, first, you jump. Second, you trust. I had no fear when I told her that. I had no fear of what the future held. Um, any more than I've had any fear during this period of time <clears throat> since this, uh, this virus has started to spread. Even back in December when I first heard about it. Um, I'm, I'm going, I hope it doesn't spread to the United States. And if it does, I hope it doesn't kill too many people. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the, the hope of beyond all hope, that kind of thing, you hope for the best and, and prepare for the worst, so to speak. And that's really, I have been extremely optimistic about uh, our future, not only as a country, but as a species, yes. There are going to be people who are going to succumb to the virus. But what that is teaching us is that the majority of the people who succumb to the virus uh, had underlying conditions, which had they been living a lifestyle that was more conducive to their own personal health. And it's not me to judge what that is. They wouldn't have these underlying conditions that would have caused them to succumb to the virus. I don't know if you heard this report or not. They did autopsies on uh, the people in New York so far that had passed. 99% of them had underlying conditions, diabetes and heart condition and so on and so forth. Well, who knows how many of those were smokers? They were maybe they were obese and on and on and on. So our way of life has contributed to this. And I'm hoping people open their eyes to see that. That See, I, I, I would agree with you uh, tremendously. And as a matter of fact, I travel internationally a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very first thing I noticed is uh, when I get back to the United States, it's how fat everybody is. But <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I would also say that, you know, I read a lot of history. I mean, I'm a history fanatic. I've been all my life, you know. And just a few, a couple hundred years ago or even a hundred years ago, the King of England didn't make it past 50. And he had the absolute best medical care and the best, you know, and he wasn't fat and he didn't smoke. <clears throat> so with a, one of the reasons why we have so many people alive today with underlying conditions is we're, we're keeping, we, we are able to prop ourselves up for longer and longer periods of time. Kinds of things that, um, I, for example, I just had a really good friend um, who's about 70 uh, drop with a heart attack at a ski resort in um, Salt, outside of Salt Lake City. <clears throat> he was in a coma for two weeks, and he came out of it. And now he's got a he's got a serious heart condition, and they're going to have to treat it and everything. But twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, he's a dead man. My mm-hmm. mother, my mother died of colon cancer in nineteen eighty four. I guarantee, if my mother was alive, got that same colon cancer today, she'd be alive today. So the kinds of things that we have that are keeping people alive for much longer periods of time, I have two aunts. I have an aunt who's 98, another one that's 94. <clears throat> it's without our medical care, <clears throat> excuse me, 
they would not be alive today. Um, no, 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 no doubt about it. So there, I think there's a, there's, there's two ways of looking. I agree with you about the, um, the ways that we're doing things, but I think that here's the point that I keep coming back to and I keep trying to make. And I think even the best intended people, whether they're liberal, whether they're conservative, whether they're Christian, whether they're not Christian, when you've lived in the American soup, as long as we all have, we are fixated on economics. Mm-hmm. And I have and I have this little thing that says Americans are convinced that whatever can't be solved with money can always be solved with more money. And so even when I even when I talk to people about that, I call a spiritual crisis, you know, um, people can't believe. I mean, I, I live on a 75 acre farm. I have a nice house. I'm, I'm well off. I drive a nice car, you know. I'm as happy as a pig, and you know what? When I'm at the monastery, and I'm living in a room the size of a cheap motel room, I'm li- eating vegetarian food. I'm getting up at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, um, I uh, I don't have a, a closet in the room. I only have a chair and a desk and a table. Um, you know, I, you have almost nothing. And so, to me, when people are constantly talking about, and I just did a, a thing about my great grandmother. My grandfather came to this country, and this is not my thousand-year-old grandfather. I'm talking about my father's father yeah, came to this is. country with uh, at 19 from Slovakia. He was 19 years old, no money, as he told me many times, no money, no English, no education, clothes on his back. And within two generations, his son got a Ph.D., you know, my his son, my father had seven sons himself. All I don't know how much money my brothers have, but we're all very well off, living in very nice houses, driving more than one car. You know, if economic progress was the secret to happiness, we should all be in the streets in ecstasy. That um, Warren Buffett said something at his annual report, annual meeting, not this year, last year. He said, think about this. He said, when I was a boy, he said, so we're talking about one generation. Of course, he's 90 years old. But he said, when I was a boy, John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in the world. And I was alive when he was alive. He said, now the even poor Americans live better than John D. Rockefeller lived as the richest man in the world one generation ago for Warren Buffett. So I started thinking to myself, wow, that's a pretty big claim. But then I thought to myself, would I rather have a 20-year-old beat-up Honda or would I rather have the best car money could buy in 1920? I'd rather have a beat-up Honda. Would I rather have be on Medicaid, go into the emergency room for my medical health, or would I rather have the best money, the best uh, medical help money could buy in 1920? I'd rather be on Medicaid. No matter what I thought of, uh, of in terms of, you know, he couldn't get bananas in winter. He couldn't, he couldn't, there was no air travel. There was no computers. There was no television. There was no air conditioning. Most of the things that money would buy that didn't even exist for him then. Mm. The only things I could think of that he possibly could have that I might want to have would, would be bling. He could have all the gold and silver jewelry he wanted. He could have all the servants he wanted. He could have all the land and houses he wanted. I really don't want any of those things. So there's nothing that John D. Rockefeller could possibly have had 70, 80, 100 years ago that I would possibly want to exchange with him now, even if I was a poor American. Which goes back to my point that if material progress, they even say, you know, a poor 
tr uh, Nairobi tribesmen in the middle of Africa with a cell phone has more power and education and knowledge than than a whole country had 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So if if material progress was what we think was the secret to happiness, we would all should be in the streets, just Hosanna in the highest. Mm -hmm. So I'm not against um, material progress. I'm certainly not against, you know, I, I wish everybody could be rich as they want to be. I have no problem with that. But my point is, when we start thinking that, that that this is a substitute, which we do all the time, is going to be our substitute for our spiritual health, for our spiritual well-being, then we're looking for love in all the right pl wrong places. <laughs> well, I will tell you that it takes us right back to uh, what I started the program out saying, that uh, this is 2020, the year of perfect vision going within. And by the way, I started thinking about that not uh, more than a few weeks ago, thinking, you know, we're already into May, June, you know, what have you. And hmm, what, what am I going to call 2021? You know, there's, it doesn't have the same zing to it. And then it hit me. And I'm going to say that it came from my intuition. Okay. I'm going to steal it. I, Whatever I, it is, I'm stealing it. Uh, okay. You, hey, I want you to spread it. Okay. Please spread it. All right. I've been saying for this year, 2020, the year of perfect vision. Now I'm going to start promoting the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. Um, it's important that we not lose sight of the fact and continue to hammer home to people, if we want to use that term, that how important this is to our well-being as human beings, not just as a society and a civilization, uh, it's I'm kind of with you in, in terms of my frustrations over constantly hearing, uh, we got to get the economy going. We got and, and I'm sitting here saying, can you do the math? OK, if you can do the math then do the math this way, you want to start the economy. What do you need? What is the most important element that you need for an economy to function? You need people. You need human beings. Okay, so we open it up. Now, we go ahead and do it, even though we haven't maybe reached the peak yet. And some say we have, some say we haven't. There may be a rebound. We don't know. All right, let's do it. Let's just open it up. And then we get 200, 300, 400,000 deaths, 500, half a million to a million deaths. You are now killing off your economic support. It's a simple math equation. If you don't have the people to do the jobs, to generate the products and services, to uh, and the people to buy those products or services, then your economy is sunk anyway. Uh, you know, and plus the fact that here's something else that's real interesting. You talked about your your father's father. Well, my ex, uh, my former father-in-law's father came over from Russia the night before the Bolshevik revolution. And certainly had he not done that, I would not have met and married my first wife and, uh, and so forth and had the experiences that I had and gone through the things that I went through. Um, but what was on the lips of most every person who came through Ellis Island? It was the phrase, the land of opportunity. And how many of those people who came over here from Ellis Island Started out with small businesses, little mom and pop stores, maybe a, a maybe a cart on the street somewhere back in the early 
1900s. And today, their ancestor, their, their, uh, their, their, their progeny, if you will, now run multi-million, multi-billion dollar corporations. Now, I granted that does go to your, uh, your comments about, you know, focusing more on the material. But look at what has happened. Now, either we are considered the greatest country in the world or we're not. We either are going to be able to get through this and we are the land of opportunity for everybody who is here or we're not. And that's why I am so optimistic. And I try, I, 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 it wears me out when I hear the negativity right now, both nationally and globally. It's like, come on. One of the things that we do better than anything else is crisis management. And we adapt, right? But we yeah, can't it's like do my that. grandfather. I, one time I was, my, my, my grandfather got, you know, I got old enough. I said, Grandpa, let me take you back to the old country to, because he still wrote to his relatives and stuff. Hmm? And he looked at me and he said, why do I want to do that? I'm an American. He said, he looked around, he waved at the house he was living in. He said, he says, I live like little king here. Um, those people have nothing over there. I live like little king. And, and that whole, and I, I really, I, everything I know, I, one of the things that I talk about all the time is gratitude. I said, it's not, the old adage is true. It's not happy people that are grateful. It's grateful people that are happy. Yes. And to me, yes. I I am so incredibly grateful for America, for what America has done for me, for what I've seen for my family and um, my brothers and all these different people, and or for my grandfather himself. You know, my grandfather worked worked in the steel mill for uh, twelve hours a day, ten cents an hour. Uh, he worked twelve hour, twelve days, fourteen days on, one day off. Ooh. And and my grandmother, who he married, who was from the old country too, they met met in this country. She never worked at all, yet my grandparents, by scrimping and saving and living, quote unquote, the right kind of life, they ended up owning their house free and clear. They owned the apartment building across the street that had three apartments in it. They had a stock portfolio. They put two kids through college um, out of their three children. Um, and and I even found, I was even thinking about it, he even managed to send some money back to the old country so his mother could buy a little extra land for the farm the family farm in Slovakia, and he did it all on a steel worker's salary. Mm. Now, it meant that my grandmother would make her own soap, and she sewed all of the clothes, and my grandfather repaired shoes, and and all that kind of stuff, which we don't, which we think is uh, incredible uh, inconvenience that we we wouldn't put up with. But mm. uh, you know, I come back. I the big thing I'm constantly telling people is, if there is a will, there's a way, and you can do it. In that sense, I am extremely, and I join you in your optimism. Um, you know, uh, don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. You can do it. That's right. And I think that that's something else that uh, uh, we we don't see in our leadership today, whether it's on the local, state, or national level. We we're not seeing uh, across the board the kind of leadership that we need. I believe that. Um, the first job of a leader is to be a coach, if you will, um, not not sis boom ba rah rah rah. Everything's great. No, acknowledge what the problems, the challenges are, and offer solutions. Or if you don't have any as the leader, then you surround yourself with people who can give you some opportunities. Well, some you know, I, again, as a, as, a, as, a, as a history buff, you know, I go back over the American American history. Mm -hmm. and, and what you see again and again in the leadership of American citizens, what I, I actually wrote an article for Forbes called The Death of the Big Idea. There was always a big idea. 
you know, uh, it was, um, uh, you know, taxation without representation is tyranny. Go West, young man, grow up with the country. A chicken in every spot. Make the world safe for democracy. All the way up through Jack Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy said, we choose to go to the moon mm-hmm. and do the other things. Not because they're easy, but because they are hard. What's missing from the national dialogue is that we are all down in the, in the, in the trenches with our noses in the, in the feeding trough, worrying about who's going to get this share of the pie. And there are no leaders and, or clergy or parents or anybody who is standing up and not just coaching, but articulating what I said, a higher vision, you know? You know, Winston, Winston Churchill, you can think of these people that could stand up in front of people and say, listen, you know, and articulate a vision. We will fight them in the fields. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in, you know, we will never surrender. These big picture ideas of, um, you know, the closest to me that anybody is doing with that is that crazy man out in California, Elon Musk. Uh, you know, he's he's up there saying, I'm going to Mars. They are with you guys. I'm going. We're going to go to Mars, man. We're going to be up on Mars and we're going to have a civilization up there. and We're going to do it in my lifetime, you know, um, or what he's doing with electric cars or whatever. But you see, there's more to the Musk mystique than just cars are just uh, he's got a, uh, a, a big a, a big he's a big thinker. He's got a vision. And he's got a vision. He's got a he's a big thinker. And what's missing in our leaders today is they're all small human beings. You know, the old expression is small ball. They're playing small ball. And nobody has can step back and stand up and say, listen, you know, um, you know, you know, I, you know, this is I'm articulating a, a vision. And uh, and I think what's really needed above all is a spiritual vision. Yes. Some kind of a spiritual revival that 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 people can 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 plug into i don't know what it would look like uh, i'm not making a, apologies for myself if i was the kind of leader that i'm saying we need i would do it and i'm not doing it so i must not be that leader so but uh or a group of leaders who whoever it is but we need something you know i remember years ago i had when i first got started on my own spiritual path i had a close friend from grade school and he was uh, into it, too. And I lost track of him for many years. And I finally got in touch with him back down in Florida. And I said, Ray, I said, so what are you doing? He said, oh, same as always, looking for something worth dying for. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the paradox is that I was speaking to a really good friend of mine in Russia. And I said, to Nikita, I said, you know, I'd like to go to um, Stalingrad, to Volgograd. It's now called Volgograd. I said, because I'd love to see where the Battle of Stalingrad um, took place. And he said, oh, yes, we certainly can go. He said, but, you know, there will never be another Stalingrad. And I said, why not? And he said, because no one believes in anything that would fight that hard for it. And so on the one hand, I find it as the paradox, obviously, like two million men died in the Battle of Stalingrad alone. So in that sense, God bless if we never have another Battle of Stalingrad. But when somebody like Nikita tells me something that I think is true, that nobody believes in anything strong enough to fight that hard for it anymore, there is no noble cause that is being articulated, you know. And even to me, even environmentalism and and um, feeding the sick and the hungry and stuff, to me, that is, that's still making ourselves more comfortable. That's still feeding the bodies, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we need something. We need something that's 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 spiritual. Well, you refer to, of course, Kennedy and his uh, his desire for us to go to the moon, uh, and we did it in ten years, nine years, I guess. And I have to say that uh, I agree with you uh, to the extent uh, that, uh, put it this way, the la- that was the last time we had a global vision that the entire planet, uh, the majority of the people who had access to the information, were following our uh our attempt to land two men not just americans but men on the moon and uh that's the last time uh 9-11 did not unify us not not in a positive way it really didn't and this somehow isn't unifying us in a positive way because well, as you- much as we had political divisiveness prior to covid19 we now have just as much divisiveness, if not more, because of COVID-19. <laughs> I know. You know, Jack Kennedy, and I'm not even a big fan of, 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 of Jack Kennedy personally, but uh, I am a fan of him in this way. I mean, because if you ask anybody, you know, of my generation or, <clears throat> or younger, um, what, what can you can remember from any of the inaugural addresses? Most, almost everybody can say, ask not what your country can do for you. But what you can do for your country. I mean, if somebody said that today for the first time, they'd be laughed off the stage. Yeah. The, co- the, co- the government and the country exist for me, that, for what I need. And I want to like stand up for my rights and I deserve this. And, you know, and the whole idea of selflessly serving your country for, for a, a, a big picture. And so Jack Kennedy was able to articulate some big ideas that's, that, and the word I want to use, <clears throat> what you were alluding to is galvanized people. Jack oh, Kennedy yeah. galvanized the entire country for this thing to go to the moon. And we were all on the edge of our seats. We were all excited. You know, and I don't, man does not live by bread alone. We want to be galvanized. We want to have, to be on the edge of, to feel as if we are part of an expedition part of a big a movement part of something bigger than ourselves that is that is you know and that and no one has been able to is able to articulate anything like that anymore um well, the religion sure. religion and spirituality has splintered you know and everybody pays this last thing i'll i'll, I'll say is that and everybody pays uh, lip service to the to the demise of community oh how terrible but but as someone like myself who has tried really hard to form community, nobody wants to be inconvenienced by community. Yeah. So yeah. So, uh, right. so yeah, I want community. Um, I was down in Mexico a couple years ago, and this guy said to me, "I really blew my mind." He said, "Because you know what the biggest difference is between you Mexicans and you Americans?" And I said, "No, what it is?" He said, "We Mexicans, we sleep in our houses. If we're not in our houses, we're part of the community. We're either at church." We're either with friends or family, you know, we're, he said, you he said, the American dream is to live in your house. Yeah. He said, every American wants to have a gym in his house, a swimming pool at his house, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, everything that he possibly could possibly need right there at his house. So he never has to leave. So he never has to deal with his neighbors, never has to deal with his community, never has to deal with the rest of the people. And I was just blown away when that. And I said, "You're absolutely right. That's what everybody wants: is their own home gym and their own home industrial strength kitchen and their own home 
TV, uh, theater, in, in, in theater and widescreen TV and never have to go to the movies, never have to leave your house. Yeah. Well, uh, I ask you to ponder this and maybe share a little bit, uh, along the same lines. Uh, I did a little, um, uh, thinking about this. I remember I used to be able to quote the uh, declaration of independence, uh, fairly, uh, fluidly. We, the people in order to form a more perfect government and so on and so forth. Um, but in it, it also says, uh, <clears throat> to, uh, establish, uh, uh, to, to ensure domestic tranquility, to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty, individualism to ourselves and our posterity. All right. <clears throat> so I sit here now with this whole threat of the coronavirus. Uh, not just globally, but nationally. And I, I ask this question of people. I don't have the answer. I'm trying to figure it out myself. How do you juxtapose your quote unquote constitutional right to individual liberty and freedom with promoting the general welfare and securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity? If you are so focused on your individual rights, how is that preserving post? How is that preserving what you have for your children and your children's children? I mean, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I, I like to comment that I, as I, in the last years that I was coaching college students, I stopped emphasizing people like Emerson's self-reliance and all that stuff. I said because <clears throat> we've actually gone to the point we've overcooked that. Yes. What we actually need is not, we still think we need more whistleblowers. We don't need more whistleblowers. We need more people that'll just shut up and go along with other people. You know, we need less people that call up as soon as you have, as soon as you have a dinner party, the phone starts to ring. I don't eat this. I don't eat that. I, I, I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, and you're supposed to, and, that, and so the, the poor hostess is supposed to have 16 different meals because this person is lactic intolerant and that person's only kosher and this person doesn't eat meat. So we are always insisting on our own individual, like you said, our own individuality and our own rights rather than saying, listen, you know, why don't I just, why don't I just go along to get along here a little bit, you know, bend to the, what the majority want. And we have a whole society built on what's called the heckler's veto. You know, if there's one person that is going to be inconvenienced or something, we got to cancel the whole the whole shebang um, for that one person. It's the heckler's veto. So, you know, I absolutely agree with you that it's uh, uh, you know, that what we have to do is we have to start thinking much more about our fellow man and what you know what we can do. You know, it's ask not what everybody can do for you. What could you do for 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 communities? And a lot of times that means, you know, as Zen um, masters like to say, horizontaling the mast of ego. I mean, we are such so eagerly ego focused. And we not only are we ego focused, but um, on the one hand, we decry egotism. But on the other hand, we we actually admire uh, the people who supposedly are standing up for their rights all the time, you know, Um there, you know, you know, be your own man, stand up on your own two feet, you know, don't, you know, I mean, like I hear feminists talking to women about don't be dependent on anybody. And I said, no, what's wrong with being dependent? You should be, we should be interdependent on each other. We go. should be able to trust each other. We should rely on each other. 
You know, I remember there was a commercial and the Wall Street Journal did an article many years ago where where there was a, a TV. It was a, uh, they were trying to sell cars to Hispanics and they had a, a, a woman in a car and she's zooming She's alone in the car and she's zooming up this mountain at breakneck speed. And when she finally gets to the top of the mountain, she jumps out of her car and she's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. She drove that car to the top and they brought the lights up and all these Latino, Latino women were sitting there and they, their eyes were wide. And they were, they were really quiet and, um, and they couldn't get them to talk until finally one Latino woman said, why is she being punished? And the, and the, the facilitator said, she's not being punished. And they said, why is she alone then? Where is her family? Oh. Wow. Why is she being punished? Why is she alone? Where is her family? And we don't even see that, do we? We don't even see that. Because to us, you know, this is the American ideal, all by yourself, driving the car, you know? And I thought we had overcooked that before feminism came along. You know, I, I believe the true feminism would be pulling us back towards mutual interdependence and away from that. Instead, most feminists are aping this masculine ideal of, of, the, uh, of the Marlboro man on his horse all by himself, you know, fighting, uh, fighting everybody in sight. So uh, uh, we need to reevaluate our value system. Yeah. Well, the, ver the first chapter of my uh, book about the Trappist, I said, um, I said there's a uh, uh, since the beginning of of, um, of business that we've talked about quantity versus quality. I said what makes the monks so incredibly successful is they emphasize the qualitative aspects of business, not the quantitative. It's not. I said it's not that they ignore them. I said monks got to be able to run a spreadsheet too. You can't mm -hmm. run a business just on quality. I'm not saying that. But there is the qualitative aspects of life. And to me, traditionally speaking, women have been the ones who worried about the qualitative parts of life. And to me, true feminism would be convincing men to pay more attention to the qualitative rather than women all running over to the quantitative. Yeah. And worrying about how many women are CEOs. We don't, you know, which gets back to the last point I wanted to make the thing about what you were just saying. Uh, about uh, making a per perfect union and, and taking care of our children. We're not having children anymore. Haven't you heard? <laughs> we're so darn busy taking care of ourselves and, and, and worrying about ourselves. We don't even bother having. Uh, uh, Germany's population is supposed to shrink from 88 million to 66 million. I mean, by, by 2050, they're going to lose a third of their population. The uh, people, I wrote an article about this for Forbes magazine. I said, there's so much cynicism and selfishness that, that we don't even believe enough in the future to bring children into it anymore. Um, and, uh, and that's the dirty little secret behind Angela Merkel letting all those uh, Ar Arabic immigrants into Germany. She knows there's a po the population bomb in reverse is coming to Germany. There's not going to be enough people to take care of the old workers to take care of the old people and all that stuff. And to me, having children is the ultimate form of optimism. It's the ultimate way in which you believe in the future. And for the first time, just last year, I don't know whether you knew this or not, for the first time last year, American women did not have enough children to replace the population. Without immigration, our population is shrinking. Mm. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, again, and I see this again as just another example of 
of hollowness, of of impotence, of of just our whole um, you know you know lack of any kind of great vision or anything that's worth you know uh, bringing children into. We just can't be bothered with it. Yeah. Well, there is a, an Old Testament passage that reads, without a vision, the people perish. And that's exactly uh, what you described earlier. And uh, I interviewed a gentleman some years ago who wrote a book called Built-in Obsolescence, do, dealing with quality versus quantity. And uh, I said, I don't understand. Why wouldn't you build something to last? He says, well, because if we don't build in built-in obsolescence into our products, then we won't be able to continue to sell these because, you know, the money won't keep coming in and so on and so on and so on. And, and I said, well, uh, then you're going to force me into buying from somewhere else because I'm not going to buy it if it's not going to last. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, at that time, I think China was importing a lot of stuff. And this is, goes back 15, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, quite honestly, now I wouldn't buy anything from China because it, there's something wrong with it. I mean, every time we turn around, we're hearing about this product and that product. I still remember when uh, L-tryptophan uh, uh, came into this country, I want to say back in the late 90s, something like that, and uh, 400 people in the whole country died. So they banned the uh, uh, the importation of L-tryptophan from China because 400 people died. And uh, it just, I, I, I find it so fascinating uh, that we're, uh, we're in this sort of dilemma. But I want, I want something that's going to last. I want something with quality, not well, just. Let me tell uh, you one thing that I learned <clears throat> the hard way. I took a company from $2,500 with three partners. We never put another dime in the business. We built two high-tech companies using the, you know, so I've been a corporate executive and a entrepreneur. And mm -hmm. believe me, there, if you have that attitude that you're talking about, planned obsolescence, mm -hmm. you're dead. Yeah. There is so, there's somebody right next door who's going to eat your lunch. Yeah. The, the rate of change of change in business, you stop for one second, innovating, adding value, taking care of your customers. And there is somebody who is going to be right there to, uh, to, to take you down. Yeah. The, 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 the myth that there's these corporations out there that are telling us what to do and what to buy. I mean, those days are gone. You know, within uh, the, the competition is so incredibly intense and, 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 and the competition to now is not just typical competition. It's disruptive competition. They'll put your whole industry out of business it's like newspapers. They're yeah. gone. You know, uh, look at radio. Look what look what's happened to radio. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think know. it'll ever go away. I honestly do not. Uh, simply because if the Internet goes down, well, radio will still be here and we'll be we at this station, we're local. We're a community station. We inform the community about things that are going on. We don't have a national uh, uh, program or or newscast. It's all local, and and I really and that's the way it used to be. I've always had problems with corporations buying up radio stations, saying, "Well, but you're not meeting the community interest needs. You're you're not you're cookie cutting. Uh, you're doing a cookie cutter job uh, of a format across the country." when uh, the radio stations are supposed to be serving the community interest in which they are licensed. But corporations aren't doing that. And that's why I'm glad that places like Clear Channel have, have uh, divested themselves of many, many of the stations.